and welcome to the third episode of Megaten Marathon, a journey through the Shin Megami Tensei and Persona games. Um, I'm Paul M. Davis, and I am here with... It's me, Brian Static, or Brian May, whatever you want to call me. It's all good. And I'm Evan. Awesome. And so in this episode, we are starting out, uh, we're going to be doing uh, three episodes about this game. It's... Uh, Digital Devil Story, Megami Tensei 2. It's the uh, sequel to the first Megami Tensei, which we uh, discussed on the last couple episodes. And it was uh, originally released in 1990 for the Famicom and then released uh, with the first game as Kyaku Megami Tensei in 1995 for the Super Famicom. And we are playing the Super Famicom version with a uh, fan translation. One interesting piece of uh, history is uh, that this was the first Megami Tensei game to feature the artwork and character design of uh, Kazuma Kaneko, who uh, has been with Atlas uh, this entire time and has done art and demon design for most of the mainline Shin Megami Tensei games, um, up to and including the forthcoming uh, Shin Megami Tensei IV Apocalypse. And uh, he's also, even though he's been an Atlas employee this entire time, he also did character design for Devil May Cry 3 and uh, Zone of the Enders 2, which is uh, pretty fascinating. So two things right there. One, 25 years as pretty much the creative, like he's the creative front line. He's what you really see, like right there at the start, pretty much. Like, does, he, does, he, does he do the main character designs on any of the games? Does he do it on like the later Persona games as well, or is that somebody else? Uh, he does it on the first two Persona games. The first two, okay. But still, that's that is pretty impressive to to keep a guy around for so long and to just turn churn out such quality product for such a long period of time. Oh, definitely. And uh, some of it is uh, reused assets. Like one thing you'll notice playing like SMT4 is that a lot of the character portraits they have for the demons are kind of the same as some of the PlayStation era games. Uh, but yeah, it is impressive they can keep somebody on for that long. Yeah, they've, I mean, there's definitely, I feel like I've heard an episode of Retronauts where they made a joke about um, the fact that uh, Atlas has been recycling some of these assets since like the mid-90s. But, um, I mean, all the designs are really incredible and are one of the things that really drew me to the series to begin with. So it's amazing that it's really can be uh, attributed to this one guy that's been around for so long. I'm sure we'll get into this later in in the uh, episode and in future episodes, but I feel like there's definitely a consistency in the um, in the aesthetics of this game with uh, more modern uh, Shin Megami Tensei games than uh, we saw with the first game. Um, and I don't want to get into it too much yet because those are uh, some spoilers, but it definitely feels more of a piece with uh, what Shin Megami Tensei would turn into. Absolutely. So my, my just my, my quick second point is Zone of Enders 2 is a bad game. Um, <laughs> no, I, I played those very recently, and I, I just want to air this out somewhere, I guess. Um, Zone of Enders 1 is fine, I guess. I mean, it's not, I think, moment to moment, it's definitely something people have nostalgia for because I guess they just owned the game or whatever or they had to get that Metal Gear Solid 2 demo. But just as a whole game, it's nothing. It's like the equivalent of eating uh, popcorn at a movie theater. You're just filling your stomach with nothing. 
And Zone of Enders 2, everyone claims, is the better of the games, but all they really fixed was the combat, and the rest of it is still terrible. So, just putting that out there, Zone of Ender fans, <laughs> hit me up. <laughs> That'll be for our uh, side podcast, or Zone, Zone of the Enders cast. <laughs> oh, God. Um, uh, no, I, I would concur with that. I've only played the first one, but it really, really was a letdown, being someone who loves mechs and, you know, the sci-fi uh, type action games um you know. and, and it's Hideo Kojima yeah yeah and it's Hideo Kojima you know it just seems completely like really really kind of like bare of content <laughs> and it's know. crazy because what you usually come expecting a Hideo Kojima game to do is a bunch of weird crap that no one else will even attempt to do but Zone of Enders is so plain and so nothing it's it's kind of weird how you know somebody can run the gamut like that I, I just assumed that weird craziness was something he had to do in every game yeah apparently not or it may have just been something that he like put his name on and uh moved on Didn't, wasn't there wasn't there like a castlevania like that that he, you like, have a lord of the shadow damned or whatever <laughs> yeah it was their attempt to bring it into the modern era on the 360 and that uh, the first there there are people that really love that first lords of shadow game uh, there are very few that love that second one yeah, that does not shock me. The first one's kind of like Shadow of the Colossus-ish, like, and that that's a strong-ish, where, like, there's just a bunch of big uh, boss monsters, right? Or maybe God of War is a more appropriate... Yeah, I analog. think God of War is a closer touchstone, because uh, I, I never played it myself. I, I tried, but I just couldn't get around to it, but uh, Giant Bomb did a complete playthrough of that first game, and man, even even with them playing through it, it's it's kind of rough to watch. Uh, well, anyway, let's uh, let's let's get back on track here. So we just finished Megami Tensei one. We defeated Lucifer. The the cities that he was in disappeared. So what's happened since then? You go into a cold open where it says, however, dot, dot, dot. And wait, wait, quick note. Just remember, everyone, that if you play the Kyuyaku remakes, you get kicked right from the first game right into the second. There's mm -hmm. no you don't miss a beat. And so basically, uh, the last game uh, wraps up with uh, Izanami, the goddess, rising into the heavens. And uh, this game opens with, however, and then there's a shot of Tokyo being blown up in a mushroom cloud while you get these, like, flashes of a guy's skeletal face screaming. And it, like, reminded me more of anything than that scene out of Terminator 2 when uh, they uh, show the, when the bombs drop. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's very reminiscent of that. Reminiscent of that. It, even though I guess this game actually kind of probably came out before Terminator 2, but it's along those lines. And then it uh, starts with the uh, classic uh, late 80s, early 90s um, vagueness of time, where it says, 1990X, the end of the era of mankind. And time flows on. Ah, yes. The far future of 1990X. Yes. Yes. Uh, and then, you know, to uh, make it very, very relevant for its time, uh, there's a TV static on the screen. And uh, then we get a shot of a fallout shelter. And that is the beginning of the game. So this is definitely, you know, again, I haven't yet played any of the actual Shin Megami Tensei games, but this is where they start to actually get into the post-apocalyptic idea, like a ruined Tokyo, a ruined uh, familiar cultural landscape. 
and uh i mean it's it's a pretty standard japanese trope of uh being afraid of nuclear weapons and i think you know out of everyone on the planet i think they have the right to be yeah, yeah but it's it's kind of funny that it's implied that the apocalypse is caused by demons or demons summoning or demons out of control but i guess the demons use nukes to destroy the earth yeah it's the, it's the ultimate evil i mean it's you know it's the same idea that like godzilla is created by the nukes yeah but um Yep, <laughs> the demons nuked Tokyo, and <laughs> yeah, there's a recurring trope in uh, Shin Megami Tensei games where there's like some kind of. I mean, th- most of them are during or post the apocalypse, which we talked about in previous episodes. But there's usually some kind of catastrophic event, you know, often a nuclear bombing, but in some of the more recent games, um, you know, some kind of like ecological. Um, disaster or something like that. And it's always left at the, at least at the beginning, a little ambiguous whether or not the nukes or ecological disaster was caused by the demons or just created like a kind of like portal between the two worlds where it became easier for the demons to invade. So after we get that uh, story dump, we... We, the first thing you do is you assign stats to three different characters. Now, who said, Evan, you said you uh, started uh, on a fresh save. Do you remember what these characters are named if you do not have a Megami Tensai 1 save? Uh, yeah, if you're coming in fresh, it gives them the excellent names of Hero, Girl, and Friend. <laughs> so you have to choose names for Hero, Girl, and Friend. Uh, choose their starting stats, uh, well, for Hero and Girl at least. Um and uh, if if you start with the Megami Tensai one save, uh, the hero is named whatever you named Nakajima in the first game, and the girl is named whatever you named Humiko in the first game, implying that there's some sort of spiritual link between the two characters. Um, you know, it's not that it goes that deep or anything, but it's pretty obvious. You know, Megami Tensai reincarnation of the goddess. It's uh, believing that a reincarnation theme is present is not doesn't take a ton of legwork yeah and like a dummy i started with a fresh save and still named them uh uh nakajima and yumiko <laughs> because I, I i haven't had enough of nakajima yeah apparently. gotta gotta have him in the game and this won't actually reap fruit for quite a while but unfortunately i named my friend evan uh thinking that oh that's a fun name evan i'll, I'll, I'll name myself after the buddy insert myself <laughs> in the story and that that that, that paid dividends for me. Oh, yes. And we'll, we'll get into that. Um, and I named him Bro because I was completely out of ideas for uh, <laughs> I've So ever since I played Persona 4 and I named the main character Brian and I got a bunch of, oh, Brian Coon, I have decided that I need to lo- just look up a basic male or female Japanese name before I name anybody. I, the the immersion it's too immersion breaking for me to hear an English name and then uh, an honorable suffix at the end. So uh, so after you name your main characters, you're popped. You you know smash cut real quick to a first person view of a computer. You're booting up a program called Devil Busters. Who are you gonna call? <laughs> um, and so you start off. You, you're playing the computer game Devil Busters. Um, and you you're controlling two characters. You're controlling hero and girl. The first thing that you're going to notice if you play Megami Tensai 1 is that your perspective of the field is completely different right now. Instead of a first-person dungeon crawler, we're seeing everything from sort of like a Zelda top-down perspective. 
And that's a pretty big uh, trend. Like it, it shocked me when I first saw that, to be honest. I didn't think something like that would be introduced so early into the series. Yeah, you start from the top-down perspective, but whenever you go into a battle or a menu, it takes you back to the familiar Megami Tensei 1 first-person interface. <laughs> it's pretty unique in the entire series, too, because uh, as we'll see in the next game, um, the first official Shin Megami Tensei uh, game, that's where the overhead view turns into the weird like map of Tokyo and weird arrows that you move around on the screen. And then it goes into like a first person view in the dungeons. So, you know, this kind of like overhead Zelda view isn't really seen in many of the games. So it yeah, is it's really kind of shocking. It's a, it's a very interesting uh, use of perspective, um, at least for the series. And you get, a, you get a little bit of exposition when you pop into Devil Busters. Uh, it goes a little something like this. From now on, you are a Devil Buster. Defeat the evil demons and return peace to the world. Everything that happens in this game is real, and they will become your real experiences. The game's hero will mature as you overcome various obstacles. However, you will not be strong enough at the outset. Know your limits and proceed with caution. With that said, let the game begin. Which lays out, you know, some basic information for anyone who's playing a Megami Tensei game fresh, which is make sure you know how much you can handle, which is a very important uh, mechanical theme in all of these games. Mm-hmm. Which, so that's a very nice tutorial warning, I think. It's also like, you know, if you uh, took a class in uh, JRPG 101, that could all serve as like the introductory text. <laughs> right. Um, so you're going to notice pretty quickly if you played Megami Tensei 1 that this area you're in is oddly familiar. It's Daedalus Tower yet again. It's not quite the same layout, but it has the basic same premise. You start off on the eighth floor, you're going to work your way down, um, and you're going to go and fight the Minotaur. And once you beat the Minotaur, you're allowed out of Daedalus Tower. Sounds familiar, right? Eighth floor, or top floor at least, acts as um, a hub town. It's not as fully featured as the one in Megami Tensei 1, but you still got you know, your first Cathedral of Shadows, your first healer. Uh, and then you got NPCs that give you various tips. And the, this dungeon basically works like a Megami Tensai dungeon. You got to find your way to the boss, beat him, then you're done. It's, it's that simple. You, do you need an item in this dungeon? Now I'm forgetting. You got a jewel, uh, a jewel from beating the Minotaur, and uh, you take it to the statue. Ah, uh, yes, that's it. You get the item you need to beat the dungeon from the boss instead of needing the item to beat the boss. Mm-hmm. So really, honestly, there's very little in the actual dungeon itself. You can get to the Minotaur pretty quickly, to be perfectly honest. You can't beat the Minotaur that quickly. And most of the demons that you can recruit in this dungeon aren't incredibly helpful in beating him, but you're still probably going to want two or three of them. Yeah, the, the main point of this dungeon seems to be to just make you get some levels, grind up some xp and then just get a bunch of demons on your side uh the, the demons are a little bit useful for just absorbing hits but like you said they don't do much damage mm-hmm. um i I, th- I think my big beef with this dungeon is that i think it's the overhead perspective that does this because i don't think the encounter rate is necessarily higher in this than it was in megami tensei one but now that it's overhead it feels like i'm constantly running into demons like it it, it feels like much more of a hassle i mean i don't know I, I, yeah, I think the encounter rate might be higher because there are several times when, let's say, I had to take three steps and each one of those steps led into a random yeah, encounter. Yeah, I had the exact same problem. 
But but for whatever, there's definitely something off about the algorithm of how many demons show up in this particular section. No question. So you, you grind your way up to about level 10 or so. Uh, you know, you, you'll have a few pretty low level demons that, man, I can't even remember. Probably an elf or something, a goo. They're, they were, yeah, there was, they're, they're, they're very forgettable, low class enemies that you show up in every game. And honestly, unlike... Megami Tensei 1, the low-level demons don't hold as much importance because there are so many more fusions in this mm-hmm. game. Like, it is an exp- it feels at least like an exponentially larger uh, dictionary of demons to work with. So, you'd, uh, you get the jewel by beating the Minotaur, and you take it all the way to the statue that's kind of in this maze-like location. You got to go up some stairs, down some stairs a few times. Get to the statue, place the jewel in, and that will summon the demon Pazuzu. Now, I'm going to go ahead and take a break because I have a question. My only experience with the name Pazuzu is an episode of Futurama where the professor has a gargoyle that he shouts, Pazuzu! <laughs> so, this is some sort of god? Um, yeah, he's a uh, Assyrian and Babylonian god. He is the uh, king of the demons of the wind, brother of Humbaba, and uh, he is the son of the god Hambi, and he represented the southeastern wind or southwestern wind, and he's the bearer of storms and droughts. Uh, when I think herald of light and messiah, I definitely think Assyrian gods. Yeah. <laughs> So, you know, physically, Pazuzu kind of looks like, I'm just going to use the description, whoever wrote here, who, I, I see, one of you, who wants to take credit, credit for this? For a buff, yes, Paul says, like a buff mecha elf with moth wings. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I couldn't describe it any better. Um, and he introduces himself, born from fire and storm, I am Pazuzu. Freed from the seal, I have rejoined the light, my saviors. My name is Pazuzu. I have come bearing an urgent message from God. And then he just whispers Pazuzu slowly under his breath one last time. Um, <laughs> so at the end of the 20th century, he says the war doomed us all. Uh, the war doomed all of this world civilizations to oblivion. Now, 35 years later, a terrible enemy has arisen to threaten mankind. The war created a dimensional rift and demons have exploited it to infest this world. That rift is here in Tokyo. When I arrived in this land as God's emissary, Bale, the ruler of Tokyo, sealed me within this computer. That is, until you saved me. The truth is, I am not the only one for whom you will be saviors. Since you two rescued me, my duty is to guide you back to your true destiny. So that sets us up for this big conflict in the game, which is Pazuzu versus Bale. And Bale? How do you pronounce that? I think it's Bale, Yeah. yeah. Bail. And so they're, they're going to be the central conflict in this game. They're going to be controlling two very separate factions that are going to be vying for your attention and favor. And then he goes to a bank of computers, right? Or the, the screen, the screenshot goes to a bank of computers. Yeah. So this is this is uh, supposedly like the guy that we that we all use treated this like it was a grand reveal. Mm-hmm. But at any point during this entire section, you could have. Um, gone into I think your computer and said exit program and you would have just it would have just said you can't stop playing devil busters yet or something along those lines and if you died you would get kicked back into uh, a screen that said hey you can't you can't give up go back and play it again and it would just like shoot you back to the 
so eighth floor of Daedalus Tower. There is actually a way to give up, and that's to go talk to the uh, village elder. And there's an option to quit Devil Busters, and you can't actually leave Devil Busters prior to finishing the whole thing with Pazuzu. Uh, but, can you really? Yeah, I actually did it a couple times, and I again, like, I don't want to spoil anything, but. It was less of a real reveal for me because uh, I did two floors of Devil Busters, then left and was like, oh, this is what this game is. Okay. Same. I, I mean, I didn't get out of it. I didn't realize you could get out of it, but I did find options that really broke the illusion of Devil Busters being the main attraction, you know. But it, the game definitely seems like it wants you to think for a minute that this is what you're going to be doing the entire time, I feel. That you're once again in the Tower yeah. of Daedalus and... Yes. There's even an NPC that says something like, uh, doesn't this remind you of somewhere familiar or something <laughs> like that? Ah, uh, yeah, there was, just to rub the salt in the wound. Yeah. Um, so, Pazuzu, back in the real world, uh, now that he's freed. Oh, the other thing is, like, you know, the, the whole Pazuzu trapped inside a computer, there's that uh, demons inside computers thing again. It's always going to be showing up. Um, I, does that, is that always the theme in Shimigami Tensai? Like, I know the later Persona games don't really stick with the whole technological aspect of that. Uh, so they play with they play with it in different ways in different games. Uh, like in SMT4, it's not explicitly about, you know, demons breaking out of computers uh, but there's always some element of technology interacting with demons yeah like an smt4 i think you have like basically a smartphone and different demon different things that you can do with your demons are like you know in quote unquote apps you know so they kind of like st- <laughs> they kind of uh Stay with the times, maybe a couple years behind it. I know in the uh, Devil Survivor games, there's, uh, you know, everybody has flip phones that can summon demons. Man, I do. I do love like how these games are so of their moment when they come out because they use the modern technology. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like it's 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 the most, you know, technologically advanced thing they have. So, I mean, in, in a few years, we're probably going to see the game where they have you know, iPads or something. It's going to be great. Well, actually, my favorite version of that is Soul Hackers because it's the perfect Sega Saturn PlayStation era. Like, hey, think of what the internet might be someday. Uh, it's like the entire <laughs> conceit is like, yeah, there's this massive information network where people can interact with each other in a 3D world. They can go to cinemas. They can hang out on the street together. It's like, <laughs> oh, what, a, what, a, what an adorably naive view for what the World Wide Web could be. <laughs> I think there's a virtual reality element in that game too, if uh, yeah. that serves me. Yeah. yeah, there's a first-person dungeon that's basically the internet. <laughs> Man, so it's like, if we could just get a time machine, get the people who thought that was how it was going to be, and be like, well, let me show you what you're thinking of in the actual terms of the internet, and then just put them at a computer with Second Life on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's like a lot of those, uh, you know, those early internet portals that were like, you know, we're going to try and like recreate like shop fronts, you know, and you're going to walk oh, yeah. around this little town and everything like that, you know, except in this uh, in this version, you're walking around the town and uh, meeting demons instead of uh, going and buying pet food. You know, I just you say shop fronts and I'm, I'm, I was just thinking that when uh, Facebook bought Oculus, they said something along the lines of like, how cool would it be if you could like put on your virtual headset and you're in the grocery store <laughs> shopping for groceries? And it's like the the appeal of shopping online is that you don't actually have to go through the aisles to find what you want. That seems to be like one of those dreams that like technologists will never completely get rid of. 
You know, it comes back every few years. I think wasn't like Xbox Live Arcade originally like, oh, you're gonna walk around like an art virtual arcade and play, like. Oh, I think there was a specific, uh, like playroom or something yeah. that did that. It wasn't like the whole the whole thing. But I, I remember what you're talking about. Yeah, that added just virtuality. I mean, like PlayStation Home is another weird example where they're like people hang out at their homes in real life. Hey, so, hey, what if we made an MMO without the game part? Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so where do we leave off here? Um, so you're you're in the real world. Naka and uh, it says Nakajima. I'm sorry, his name's not actually Nakajima. Hero. But Pazuzu tells you, Hero, I will give you a demon summoning program, and suddenly you have your comp ability again, and you're just like in Devil Busters. All of your abilities transfer over. He tells you, I'm going to give your friend the gift of magic, and uh, you no longer, and and uh, I think kind of a baffling game design decision, the, the, the girls' experience points do not apply to friends' experience points. Which is so frustrating. <laughs> oh, yes. So you have to start friend from level one, but uh, hero has all of his experience from the game. I mean, why didn't friend like just pick up from the girl? Like he uh, he it was watching you play the whole game. It's not like watching someone play the game versus actually playing it yourself for a JRPG is radically different. <laughs> oh yeah, and and mechanically it doesn't make any sense. Thematically, we'll probably touch on why that was a little bit later in the game because uh, oh sure you keep your powers because you're a player and like you also keep all your demons from the game which is pretty helpful uh, yeah there definitely is a reason why he doesn't keep the experience <laughs> points it's just it seems from a design perspective a little silly yeah um so he gets magic he basically gets the two basic spells you need a, uh, a soft heal dia and a map auto mapping program well not auto mapping it like shows you the mini map on your on your screen just like in the original game um and now that you've broken the seal inside the digital world, demons have begun invading the fallout shelter you live in. So you're everybody's favorite person now. So he tells you to go to, to the bottom basement floor one where you can defeat the necromancer Nibiros and, you know, basically win the first dungeon of the game. Uh, so let's see. The perspective suddenly switches to first person uh, dungeon crawling again that we're all familiar with and then your friend says to you that was not part of the game what kind of trouble have we gotten ourselves into and now you know this is going to be a much more talky game than Megami Tensai ever tried to be indeed <laughs> and then he quickly changes his tune you know from like what the hell is going on <laughs> and immediately says are we ready to fulfill our destinies as the messiahs First, we need to go get some weapons from the armory. So. Are we ready? Let's gear up. That's, <laughs> I, you know, if, you, if you're questioning it, you know, protest a little more. Yeah. Uh, he, he goes from uh, freaking out about the game, uh, not playing correctly, and having an unexpected ending to uh, declaring that uh, he's a messiah, like within literally one line. Yeah, so naming this guy after myself is already reaping benefits for me. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, so so now we're in this whole new, you know, supposedly new world. Uh, 
The dungeon stuff looks just like it did in SMT1, uh, a little bit nicer. Uh, since we're playing on the Super Nintendo or Super Famicom port, every there's a little bit more visual consistency from game one and two, but I was understand that uh, two is actually a pretty big visual jump. Uh, yeah, well, the original NES Megami Tensei is very, very rudimentary in terms of graphics. Yeah, I would compare it to like a, a really old uh, Might and Magic or an Alkabeth uh, for the more Western uh, games. But, yeah, like it looks lower budget than like the original Dragon Quest, which is saying something. But it, I mean, it doesn't look terrible or anything. Yeah. So, um, so you have you have the same map as the first game. Uh, the one addition is it does bring in an overhead mode. It's not exactly like Devil Busters, but uh, the game is divided in between two different types of gameplay. Uh, you have your standard first person dungeon crawling map, uh, but then whenever you leave the dungeon and come to the surface of the world, you have this really huge. Uh, kind of beautiful overworld uh, and it behaves like your standard rpg overworld where you take a few steps get some encounters uh, there are little towns and caves and buildings all over the over map and uh it's it, it's a pretty nice change to be honest because as much as i enjoyed parts of Megami tensei one uh, by keeping everything in a dungeon it made everything feel really claustrophobic and it was a lot harder to get a sense for like what these dungeons are supposed to be in the world uh, whereas in this, you can see pretty easily. Oh, this is a subway system. This is a town. This is a uh, this is a building. Yeah, it is kind of refreshing to be able to like jump between two perspectives, and it kind of. I mean, I wonder if it was an influence, but it uh, really uh, in some of the aesthetics and just in the fact that it jumps between the first person dungeons and the overhead world, kind of reminds me of the first Fantasy Star, which I think had come out a couple years earlier. So. I'm curious whether that had any influence on uh, the way that the game is structured. Yeah, I'm sure like a lot of these, you could actually trace some of their lineage back to the Ultima games because uh, they had a similar, uh, the, the first few Ultima games had a similar setup. Right. Uh, uh, so one of the other nice changes is that instead of going to a crusty old man to save your game, you're now going to computer terminals. Uh the, the, the only real addition that they add is that you can teleport between save points, which is pretty crucial given the size of this world map. Uh, overall, because they switched the world map view, there are a bunch of small dungeons. Uh, there, are so, there are a couple big ones, but you, so far, we're, most of us are about halfway through the game. We haven't run into anything anywhere near as big as like a full eight-floor Daedalus Tower sort of deal. Yeah, not not quite yet. You know, quickly on the, uh, on the save points being computers now, there's actually a much larger uh, reliance on technology for storytelling purposes in Mikami Tensei 2. Despite the books being very technologically focused, Megami Tensei 1 ended up being pretty uh, cut and dry, like religious sort of fantasy. Yeah, in Megami Tensei 1, it, it kind of takes place in a tomb, basically, in an ancient tomb from the demon world. Uh, so keeping with the reliance on technology, uh, this game adds guns. Uh, you not only have swords like in the first game, but you have guns, helmets, chest pieces, gloves, and boots. And so with the with the gun and sword, as you actually you when you're in battle, you can attack and then choose whether to use a gun or a sword. And it's kind of weird what will be more effective sometimes, but the general rule of thumb is if it's like if it if it's fleshy, you should probably use a sword. No, no. Is it opposite? It's ethereal. Should probably use a sword. So it's kind of inconsistent. If it's armored but not ethereal, use a sword. If it's ethereal but not fleshy, use a sword. If it's fleshy, you use a gun. Okay, so if it's fleshy, non-armored, use a gun. Everything else, probably use a sword. 
Yeah, and the guns tend to be a little bit more powerful. Uh, you really quickly get guns that hit like three or four targets. Uh, pretty early in the game, you can even get a, a semi-automatic gun that can shoot an entire team at once. Mm-hmm. Now, my understanding is the further you get into the game, the least useful the guns are going to be. So, like, they, they get progressively worse, like, the closer you get to the end. That would be consistent with later uh, Shin Megami Tensei games, where the guns seem more powerful at the, original, uh, at the outset um, and become pretty useless as the game goes on. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so another uh, change, uh, possibly an improvement from the first game, is that in addition to just having more types of armor, uh, you will upgrade armor a lot more frequently than in the first game. Uh, and on top of that, there's hidden stat effects that you can't actually find out without putting in the armor and trial and error. Uh, so like a certain pe- helmet might give you extra intelligence, uh, gloves might lower your f- susceptibility to fire damage, and as far as I can tell, there's no way to actually find that out without just buying it and trying it out. Yeah, and I hear that uh, sometimes uh, swords can be cursed. <laughs> yeah, uh, so <laughs> I'll touch into this a little bit when we actually get to the area, but I had to reload a save and lost about an hour's worth of progress uh, because I found a sword that's like, oh man, this this sword called Nihilo. It's like, huh, that, that sounds nice. Like I might, I'm going to hit something and it'll turn into nothing. That's great. Uh, turns out it makes my character cursed, takes one HP off per turn, and is unequipable. So... <laughs> So I'm I gotta wonder if there's a there's got to be a mechanic to balance that somewhere. Like in Dragon Quest, usually you can find. Um, I mean, there are priests who can uncurse you, and then you have to take the weapon off. So I've got there's got to be something. I bet we just we haven't found it yet. That's possible. Uh, the one thing I I'm not willing to give a Famicom game the benefit of a doubt on these type of playability things, though. Fair, it's fair, very true. Like RPGs of this era. Are just they're mean, and this is we are possibly playing you know the meanest series. So yeah, although I think after MT one, I'm actually really pleased with how pleasant this game is. But, yeah, uh, so far. Yeah, yes, okay. so far. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so getting back into some of the changes, uh, the other big change is to demon fusion. Uh, in addition to, like Brian said, there's a ton of new demons, uh, but on top of that, they changed the way fusion works. So in the first game, you could totally grind the first couple of areas and then fuse a really high level demon by just three or four different fusions. Like You could get Odin from fairly weak demons. Uh, in this game, it introduces a tier-based system that you'll see throughout the rest of the series, where you basically fuse two demons of a, a roughly equivalent level, and you'll get a demon of a higher tier. Uh, so you can't merge a pixie and a dwarf and, you know, pull Loki out of it. Um, You know, really quick on the armor note, before we move too far away from that, it's, do you think that they added more types of armor because they just thought just attaching new equipment to the same slots was like too dumb. Like I, I just trying to, I, I, why do that instead of just allowing there to be more variants and more drops of the four or five slots that were already there? Yeah. It's hard to say. I mean, I kind of get the sense from the armor system that they want to allow players to have uh, more opportunities to customize their individual loadouts by like, okay, well, you can't respect during the game. You can't get your stat points back. Uh, but by putting on this combination of gears, you can be strong against this enemy. You can emphasize certain stats. Uh, but because none of that's exposed to the player, it makes it kind of hard to take advantage of that. So, yeah, I'm not sure what, where they were going with that. There, there is one really, uh, speaking of stat adjusting items, there's one really nice usability feature, which is when you're leveling up after a battle, it'll show you how many bonus stat points you have. Mm-hmm. So you'll see a total, but you'll know for sure which one are your level stat points versus your equipment stat points. Okay, yeah, that sounds pretty useful. 
Um, so, so go on. We were talking about demon fusions. Yeah. So, uh, so the other change to demons, uh, it's not a huge change, but they balance it a little bit differently so that it's much easier to get, uh, stat modification things for your party. Uh, so in the last game, I think there was maybe a handful of demons that could boost attack and lower defense for, uh, your party and the enemy. But I was getting these guys almost immediately, immediately in this game to the point where by stacking attack buffs in my party and defense buffs on my, and defense, uh, uh, malices on the enemy. I was I was finishing fairly difficult bosses in like three four turns. Uh, so that, that's that's one major change to the demon balancing. Uh, it's kind of counteracted a little bit by changes to the healing system. Again, like about halfway through the game, and I haven't encountered any way to heal my entire party at once. Uh, there are more powerful single target target healing spells on more demons, but uh, Mediarama has nowhere to be found. Yeah, they they balance that instead by get like incrementing your basic uh, healing spell instead. So you get a second tier healing spell a lot earlier than you did in the first game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one of the most surprising things was like I, I'm expecting to see like the final spell, the Dirahan, that gives you a full heal instantly. I was expecting to get that toward the end of the game, but I was getting that before I was even getting like second tier attack spells. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and speaking of demon fusion, like you, you don't get to use this option for quite some time. But the first time you go into Cathedral Shadows, you see two options, double fusion and triple fusion. So that's totally new from the first game. And uh, you go ahead. You can describe it. Oh, yeah. I was going to say uh, tr- triple fusion is great. Uh, there, there are more restrictions on it. Uh, like I don't think you can use a, a good and an evil demon in the same triple fusion. No, I think you have to do all three from the same uh what do you call it? Alignment. Yeah. Uh, but the nice thing is it actually eliminates the need to grind and have as many specific demons because as long as you get a few demons from an area, enough to do a triple fusion, it almost guarantees that you can fuse something high level without too much difficulty, which has been super helpful for certain bosses. Uh, so the last the last major change, uh, at least for this one, uh, at least for the introduction, is uh, there are now these permanent stat boosting items. Uh, you'll see these throughout the rest of the series. Things will permanently raise strength, intelligence, that kind of thing, uh, tucked away in little corners of the dungeon. Uh, so rather than just making you clear an entire floor to be of sufficient level to beat the boss, there's a couple little extra incentives in there to be a completionist. Yeah, it gives you reason to um, explore the dungeons, you know, and certainly parts of the dungeons where there's nothing else in there other than just grinding for uh, grinding for levels. Because there was there was treasure in Megami Tensai One, but there wasn't a ton of it. It was pretty much three three different types of treasure. You found mag, you found gold, and more than likely you'd find amethysts and jewels. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, should I start us out with the uh, start us off here with the uh, shelter? Absolutely. All right. Well, once you uh, leave the computer room, you uh, end up in uh, the Fallout shelter, uh, which is Kaihin Shelter uh, Number Three. 
and uh, you started at basement level four, which uh, you know similar to the top of Daedalus Tower. Um, you know, it's like your little little town that you start out in. And there's a bunch of NPCs. There's a uh, poison bar that you can go in and talk to uh, other NPCs and uh, get drinks, which uh, don't seem to be poison. So I'm not sure why it has that name. Um, and then there's a. You know, it's it sound tough and cool. It does. No, it's named after the. It's named after that character from that fighting game series. Poison bar. <laughs> 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 Roseanne Barr's long lost daughter. Right, um, yeah. <laughs> sorry. So in the bars, um, in, now there were bars in the first game. You could just talk to people in them, but now it seems that one of those NPCs uh, is going to ask you for a drink. And if you say yes and spend the hundred maca or so on a drink for them, they'll give you some, you know, pretty good to know information. Yeah. Yeah. So it gives you a little more, a uh, little more interactivity, and you can have some have some drinks, which I didn't really notice any effect from them. And then uh, instead of a weapon shop, there's like a weapons room where a uh, soldier tells you that they've sent the troops in the shelter to uh, basement first floor, but uh, no one has returned. And so he gives both you and your friend Walter PPKs and armor. And as you continue to walk around the uh, fourth floor of the basement you uh meet your friend's girlfriend who uh asks you not to leave leave her alone because there's demons running about and so you promptly uh turn around and walk out and leave her alone (laughs) yep absolutely so i got a few questions about this soldier who just up and gives you some firearms now one this is a jrpg i assume our heroes are probably 14 15 and he, is it just standard procedure? Is it just arm everybody because there's monsters inside? It doesn't matter. They're probably going to die anyway. Well, I think it's implied that those are the last weapons because if you go back, he says that there aren't any more uh, – there's no more equipment. Well, all the more reason to not arm these random 15-year-old kids. Escort them to the fucking safe room, OK? Yeah. Especially because especially if you duck out of the room uh, – if you duck out of Devil Summoner or uh, – Devil Busters before you beat before you get Pazuzu, he'll chastise you. He's like, hey, like there will be multiple people in that area. will be like, hey, don't be so reckless. Life isn't a game, you know. Be careful with your weapons. And then as soon as you head back out, it's like, oh yeah, well, I don't know. Here's here's a pistol. See, and here's the thing. Here's what you I learned pretty quickly. If these people had all realized that the best way to take care of this dungeon is actually to leave the dungeon, go recruit some demons outside then come back in the dungeon and beat the dungeon, they would all feel way different about this situation. <laughs> they feel well, a lot well, more empowered. Well, I mean, the other thing is that you're the ones responsible for letting the demons loose in the uh, fallout shelter. True, true. Although so, you could argue... Uh, again, again, another reason to not give these guys guns. Yeah. You, could, you could argue it was Pazuzu's fault because there are other people that have played Devil Busters. Uh, like if you go talk to people, uh, you can actually bet someone that you'll beat Devil Busters, that you'll beat Minotaur, and you get a little bit of cash after you get out of the uh, game. But if you if you buy that girl in the bar a, um, a super milk, uh, she'll tell you that after she beat Minotaur and Devil Buster, she lost to some Pazuzu that's not even mentioned in the strategy guide. Ah, yeah, I remember that girl. Um, so wait, so if you can get out before you beat Devil Busters, does that mean so it, there's no demons in the in the shelter? Then, yeah, right? there's no demons. Uh, everybody's dialogue is a little bit different, and then there's a guy in the elevator that basically kicks you out. 
Oh man, I wonder what uh, Hiroko, di- uh, like the the friend's girlfriend's dialogue says. So there's a nurse in that room, and it says, "This this is your buddy's girlfriend's room. She's not here right now." Okay, it's nothing interesting. Nope, <laughs> nothing, <laughs> nothing to see. So once you've uh, you know done these things on uh, the basement fourth floor, uh, you start walking around, and you'll uh, start hitting some enemies. And most of the enemies that you come across in the dungeon in this dungeon are uh, regular zombies or punk zombies, because this was 1990. Um, punk so, zombies, at least the <laughs> game was made, and punk zombies was a uh, real concern at the time. <laughs> so the real reason you want to go outside and recruit some demons is because none of the demons in here are able to talk. It's true, it's true, but you can summon the demons that you had in Devil Busters. It's true. So that gives you that gives you a little bit of a boost, but you can still just get a little bit stronger. Yeah. It just makes it a little bit easier. But yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, which is what I did. I, I actually didn't go outside until after I'd beaten uh, Nibirus, or N- Nibirios. Um... So yeah, yeah, you get to a elevator that, uh, unlike uh, the Tower of Daedalus, actually works, um, and, and you go down to uh, basement level three, uh, which has a hospital um, and nothing else m- much in it, and uh, the hospital isn't particularly useful. Um, you can heal your, your yourself and your friend, but you can't resurrect any characters that have died, and you can't heal demons. So it's not like the healing rooms in uh, um, in the rest of the game and in the previous game. You go down to uh, the second floor. There's nothing much there, like literally nothing. You just walk around in circles for a minute. Um, and then you get down to the first floor, and it's just one long hallway um, that leads you to a soldier who tells you that Nibiros is inside, and he's the only soldier left alive. Um and so he tells you not to go inside, but you go inside anyway, of course. Yes, of course. We have a long streak of just disobeying advice all the time for the rest of this game. Yes. Um, so the thing, this level is not full of a ton of content, like this dungeon. It's mostly there so you can get your level one buddy up to speed. Mm-hmm. And like, because you, you just need him to be just strong enough to beat Nibiru's. Like, you, your main character is almost completely ready for this fight right out of the box but not him yeah yeah and if you go in there just like without any any demons and with him low leveled you'll get your ass kicked but if you just level him up a little bit and have like maybe you know the demons that you had uh in devil busters uh he's really not that hard so yeah you uh you encounter nibiros who uh Kind of looks like a Lucha Libre wrestler with a long blue sash around his waist, and he's uh, holding a staff over his head. Which is in line with how, you know, my neighborhood necromancers were when I was a kid. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and he says uh, very grandly, uh, two young, fresh bodies have delivered themselves to me. You'll make fine zombies. And uh, yeah, the battle's pretty simple as long as you can heal his hits. Um, which some of which will, uh, cause double damage, uh, which is a pain. And so you beat him. Chicken shit soldier shows up back up and says, uh, you did it hero. 
Now my names can now my friends can rest in peace. Thank you. And uh, after this point, uh, there is a uh, hallway that takes you back to the uh, elevator. And uh, this is where I first went outside. If you go up to the first floor, it takes you to a uh, shelter entrance gate that says airlock release pro- prohibited. And uh, consistent with your other actions, you say uh, you're not going to pay attention to uh, that alarm. And you go outside. <laughs> And oh snap, you thought we were done with our friend Overhead Zelda view? Nah, man, he's back and he's bigger than ever. (laughs) Um, So yeah, you're back in the overhead view. You have a like a world map, like a Final Fantasy Dragon Quest world map, which is, you know, just kind of shocking in a way. Um, But I mean, you're just you're traversing over the ruins of Tokyo instead of a fantasy landscape. Um, And it's it's. It's a bleak place. You see a lot of crumbling cityscapes and uh, the sea is a green slime that's probably radioactive and bubbling. It's pretty gross. Um, So, you know, let's let's talk culture for a second. So I'm an American and I'm pretty bad at understanding geography of other places that I've never been to. Um, New York is a very confusing place for me (laughs) and Tokyo is equally confusing so my understanding is Tokyo is basically a mega city that's compromised that's composed of many other city districts within it. Would that be an accurate description? Yeah, definitely. Like each, I would almost like the the way a lot of people describe Tokyo is like the the mayor of Tokyo is less a mayor and more like a governor. Uh, like t- Tokyo is more like a state unto itself than just a city. And now how much of like I know Japanese population wise, a t- like a huge chunk of people live in Tokyo, but like land mass wise, how much of Japan does Tokyo take up? Yeah, just looking at the map, it doesn't look like it's a huge portion of the land mass at all. Uh, there's a large area that looks like it's the Tokyo general metropolitan area, but the city itself is not. Is it-, it is 845 square miles and 13.62 million people. Apparently, so that it's a lot of people. It's a lot of area, uh, but it's it's super dense. But yeah, it, it just in terms, I guess, of the actual country, I don't know. It's maybe like, yeah, it's not even uh, like two percent. Yeah, I'm seeing here actually. It's the second largest single metropolitan area in the world in terms of built up or urban function land mass behind only New York City. So. Yeah, that makes sense. And I mean, I'm sure there's a ton of cities that don't consider themselves part of Tokyo that are pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, we're out in the wastelands of Tokyo. And so I don't know do you, if you call these things districts or neighborhoods or what, but basically you're going to be going to several landmark real life locations. Um, I only recognize one of them, and I guess I'll talk about that when we get to it. But anyway, so... Let's let me try this. Haneda. So you uh, you walk to a new district called Haneda, um, and this is where you're going to find your first healing room, I believe, outside of the the nurse. Um, you also go to Cathedral of Shadows, and then a dungeon in which you can find a guy who explains demon fusion to you and a bronze sword. And this guy actually goes really in depth with how demon fusion works, like so in depth that I kind of. Uh, didn't have the patience to read through all of his text. 
because I, I mean, he can give out a lot of useful information, but it ultimately like what I can do in demon fusion is dependent on what demons I find. So I'm I'm OK with just sort of rolling with luck, especially in this game where it seems like there's going to be a lot of different end game options and not just three specific demons that you have to get or it's impossible. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I feel like there's still an element of luck to it and trial and error. I mean, it's not like the more recent games that like actually come with like spreadsheets of a uh, demon fusion for uh you know within the instruction manuals right right oh the other thing worth pointing out is that he gives you the bronze sword and he explains to you that while you can buy guns from any old shop you can only find swords kind of out in the wild uh, highlighting the whole you know we, we built ourselves up on technology but if you want the really powerful artifacts we have to get those from the demons <laughs> right yes absolutely um so yeah you are limited with what you can actually buy um, you, uh, you get the information from some wall writing that, you, or uh, it's an NPC, I can't remember, that you have to obtain the fire seal. You can also go to a bridge and find a giant sea monster who tells you that you need the fire seal before he'll let you cross. And that's going to happen several times throughout the game. I, in the, I think in the original Japanese version, these were called tally, uh, I think short for talismans instead of seals. Just a small note that I know. And it's worth adding, because uh, I'm not sure if we pointed this out earlier, but this is also a fan translation. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really good one, mm-hmm. like, in, in terms of being consistent within itself. Like, how accurate it is, you know, is always kind of hard to know. Yeah. So, you get, you, do you get any kind of hint that it's your friend's girlfriend who has this thing? Or is it just you know, explore till you find it. Uh, so there is somebody in the town that will tell you, uh, oh, uh, someone just sent for a delivery to so-and-so's place. So, yeah, you go there. You go to Hiroko's place. And she says, ooh, a strange mystery woman visited from the surface to, for an item to give to you. Because that's that's a real great way of delivering it. Um, and she sounds a little <laughs> jealous. She's like, Who, what's with this woman? How dare you? Um... Once you get the fire seal, you can travel the broken bridge. Uh, the Mora is the name of the demon. And is that based on anything or is that just sort of a creation? I think it's just a creation. I couldn't really find anything. Yeah, it didn't sound like a thing, but I could believe Mora is an ancient demon or something. Or it might be a yokai. I don't know. There's a lot of those that turn up. <laughs> a Google search for Mora turns up a lot of pictures of blackberries. <laughs> All right, so it's a blackberry. Just imagine a giant blackberry. No, it sort of looks like a, a creature from the Black Lagoon kind of thing. Um, fish man. So anyway, you find a shelter in the ground in Haneda, and you go down, and you get a message from Pazuzu who says that his servant, Orthrus, is at the Princess Hotel and will aid you if you, jo- if you join forces with him. Now, the pre- Princess's Hotel is not in Haneda, uh, the Princess Hotel is in another town called uh, Shinagawa. Okay, so it's in the next town over. Um, and uh, so a priest in a room will ask you to defeat the Jabberwock so he can attend Mass. So you do it. It's it's supposed to be, I guess, a boss-level threat. Or really, it's a mini-boss. There's a lot more of uh, what I would consider mini-bosses in this game. And some of them go down real, real quick. Like, surprisingly quickly. I took the Jabberwock out really easily. I'm kind of curious because you've got that Lewis Carroll reference. I'm kind of curious in the Japanese if that was uh, included there or if it was um, added in by the translators. 
Oh no, the Japanese love Lewis Carroll. Uh, like Alice in Wonderland is huge. Like that's why Mario eats mushrooms. Ah. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not even kidding. That is the reason Mario eats mushrooms. This is, this, I, this is a revelation I'm having. <laughs> um, so he, you beat the Jabberwock. Uh, you have uh, gone through the Looking Glass, and you return to the Messiah. No, I'm sorry, you return to the priest, and he declares that you are truly the Messiah's, and he gives you Solomon's Ring, an important thematic symbol for this game that represents trust and friendship and something, something, something. The power of friendship. Yes, it's an important <laughs> theme. So you, with, with Solomon's Ring, you take off on the road and you go to... You go to Shinagawa, a small town a little bit northeast of the first shelter. Um, now that you've been sent there by uh, Pazuzu to find his servant Orthus, uh, once you get there, you find out that people all over town are talking about Orthus and how he's kind of dominating the Princess Hotel and he won't let you near it. And they portray him as kind of an aggressive, threatening monster, uh, which I guess is appropriate because uh, in Greek mythology, Orthus was the uh, bodyguard of Medusa's grands uh, grandson. So a little bit of continuity from the first game, maybe, or just confusing mythologies, which this series has a lot of. Uh, th there's a few small things in the town. Um, it has an armor shop, uh, which possibly has a bit of foreshadowing, is labeled Min. And has <laughs> clothing for men, stuff for men, nothing but men's clothes. Uh, it's a good place to get armor, stock up. Um, this game's pretty free-flowing with the money, so I've every shop I came across, uh, except for one, I was able to just buy out all the stock with all the best gear. Really? You, you're free-flowing? Um, <laughs> I had to... I had to save state at one of the gambling places for a bit. So I had enough money for all the things I needed. So I don't think I'm going to get into this as much as I did with the previous game. But like with Megami Tensei 1, I kind of did some stuff out of order by accident. Uh, just by virtue of getting lost and wandering around a lot. Yeah. So I had a lot of extra cash from that. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And I actually, instead of, I did a lot of just like running around and grinding and fast forward. <laughs> which, you know, may not be the, uh, the intended way to... Uh, gain levels and gain money but um it worked i was i was always flushing cash in uh, magnetite or at least so far mm -hmm. yeah so so after gearing up uh you've heard rumors all over town that the town's been trying to take down orthus but they can't uh there's a couple references to a witch in tokyo tower uh one guy if you talk to him he asks if you're going to go defeat Orthus, and if you tell him yes, he'll go, oh, you, you must not be a bad guy. You're going to kill the witch, right? Maybe try talking to her. Maybe you could talk it out. Uh, kind of foreshadowing some of what we'll be getting into in Tokyo Tower. But um, you go to the Princess Hotel. Uh, it has a couple of extra features in it. Uh, you can upgrade your guns. Uh, you can talk to a couple more NBC, NPCs. Um, uh, one of them actually calls you uh, out, call, calls you a fool if you try to pretend like you're the messiah. Uh Kind of foreshadowing some of the stuff later in the game is it's kind of confusing whether or not the game thinks you're a messiah or not, because some NPCs will call you the messiah. Other NPCs will get very angry at you if you call yourself a messiah. And it's never really clear what the factions are in this game, other than a kind of a vague Bale versus Pazuzu. It, you know, some areas are pretty cut and dry, but you're for the for the most part, like when you in, when you find a random NPC. Yeah, it's kind of hard to know where they're supposed to land on this uh you know sliding scale yeah and some of this confusion may come from me having done a couple of areas a little bit out of order uh finding finding groups before i was introduced to them by other npcs right 
I feel like there's some hinting that there's going to that there's some kind of like religious group or cult that is looking for a messiah. Yeah, definitely. And you do see people uh there's a couple of quest givers later on that will explicitly call you the messiah and then send you off to kill a demon. Uh, so once you get to the Princess Hotel um, on the first floor, uh, almost right away, you'll find Orthus, the demonic hound. He will growl and say, so you are the messiahs that Pazuzu told me about. If you're going after the witch of Tokyo Tower, I'll gladly come along. And then you get a really, really powerful demon. Uh, at that point, he tells you to go to the witch of Tokyo Tower and you're off presumably to kill her. So you start heading out to uh, towards Tokyo Tower, and uh, to get there, you have to go through the under, underground passageway that we uh, came across before, and uh, you'll find the uh, small town Ariake, and uh, there's not a whole lot in there, but uh, there's a bar where you can talk to NPCs, um, including one man who says, uh, if you buy him a drink, that uh, Bale's rule was supposedly absolute. But Pazuzu's revival is starting to cast doubt on that assumption. So uh, I feel like in a few elements that are, you know, in a few places, they're implying that you're a few decades into the future and Bale has been pretty much ruling in Tokyo with an iron fist since the uh, nukes dropped. Yeah, which would have been a little, I think that would have been nice information to get up front, I think. Like, I think the Pazuzu being freed right at the beginning would have more emotional weight if, like, it said something like, you know, Bale got rid of all his enemies or something. It's true. It's true. You know, I, I mean, and like, you know, I like I like subtext in video games and things that aren't, you know, directly stated. But in this case, and considering the vintage, it seems like more like a uh, plot beat that they just missed or something like that. Yeah. Um, so others in the bar seem to actually like the witch in Tokyo Tower, which is a little more foreshadowing, including a uh, quote-unquote happy man who uh, says that she's, quote, super hot. And uh, there's also a boy who says that she plays with him. Ooh. Um, I don't know. I, I didn't get that. <laughs> no, but, uh, no he, he's real. He's real small, right? Yeah, like, he's yeah, actually he's like a, a child. Boy. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the happy man uh, has the hots for the witch, um, which reminds me of something. A question that I have for you guys. Uh, one of the status effects that I believe the uh, harpies can give you is happy, and I can't figure out what the hell that actually does to you. Um, I think it has a chance to distract you from be from like attacking at all. Okay, that's good. Yeah, you'll sometimes miss a turn. There's lot. There's lots of happy people in this uh, bombed out apocalyptic wasteland. Apparently, yeah. Of all the, of all the status effects, to get happy is probably one of the least consequential. Like you'll miss a turn, they'll get an extra go, and usually the status will take care of itself. I've never had to cure happy. Yeah, yeah, me neither. It seems to go away pretty quickly. Um, so there's also a drugstore. There's a uh, store, probably the first one you come across, that sells uh, recovery items. And there's a couple bedding parlors, and it sounds like uh, you may have spent more time with these than I did. I didn't really have much patience for them. I mean, if you play bigger and smaller with the emulator, just, like, save state before every decision and reload if it fails. yeah. Well, it's it's but no, like if I was actually playing this game on the original hardware, I would 
not have touched those at all. Like slots in any game is always a turnoff for me. Like who enjoys playing slots? Yeah, no, I had I had really no patience or interest in that, and was like, eh, I'll just do a little. And more it's, it's like for that. RPGs. RPGs feel compelled to always have a, some sort of gambling hall mm-hmm. for some reason. And I've never I've never felt like it was necessary or it was worked or it was fun. But I probably they just it's one of those things where it's like, oh, if we don't have a gambling hall, we lose out on this type of player who buys RPGs for these. Or it may just be like a cultural like one, you know, like a cultural element that doesn't translate. Because I'm I'm thinking of like uh, like Pokemon. Pokemon has a a huge slots section in the first game for no good reason. A slot section that looks suspiciously like a pachinko parlor. Right. Yes, yeah, true. So anyway, uh, that's pretty much all you have to do in uh, Ariake, and um, from there you roll over to uh, Shiba, which is uh, this thoroughly destroyed city. Except for a uh, Cathedral Shadows, um, a save game and teleport portal, uh, a healing room, and then um, actual entrance to the Tokyo Tower. quick i had to look this up just because i wanted to get it uh right uh the person it, it seems to be one individual uh who translated this rom was the rom hacking airy so just getting that out of the way right. getting that on the record so moving on we're at the tokyo tower a little bit of you know cultural information tokyo tower was originally a radio tower it's this big eiffel tower shaped guy in tokyo i believe it was built in the 50s or 60s um and it's uh painted red and white and it's uh it was then used to uh to uh, not teleport uh, transmit uh, television signal instead for like NHK and the big some big Japanese networks and very recently I'm not sure if they're not using it anymore they built a new tower uh, they had to build a new tower for uh, digital broadcasting so the Tokyo Tower I think is maybe not used for television anymore so I think it's still it's going to stand forever because it's just one of those iconic things that you can't get rid of um, but so you got the Tokyo Tower um a very noticeable part of the Tokyo skyline. And there's a barrier here. And if you tried to come here before, you would notice a red and black barrier. Like it kind of looks like those weird effects that comics from the nineties used to use. (laughs) So think black background, small red cracks everywhere. And this is basically, you'll see lots of barriers like this throughout the game and how to defeat them is, uh, you know, various depending on the circumstances. But this particular time, Orthus will sort of punch through the barrier to allow you to get through. You get inside, 
Um, you go upstairs, you meet an NPC who asks if you are the Messiahs. If you say yes, they, they're emphatic. You have to meet the princess. Or no, if you're looking, you're looking for the princess, you mustn't. Wait, what? Yeah. I don't remember that. Is that how it goes? They, yeah. They're like, you don't want to meet the princess? Yeah, so what, for what, some reason, what, they don't want you to meet the princess. Huh, what faction are they? Do they or maybe they know a prophecy about the princess that you don't know. But that's a little confusing. I wasn't I missed that context. Got to be honest. So you get you get through and uh is there a mini boss you have to beat on the way to her or is there just a person who kind of blocks your path for a second? I found her pretty quickly. I found the NPC and then I think I took the back way or something like that, but huh. I, didn't, I didn't encounter anybody on the way to uh the uh the witch. Yeah, neither did I. Well, so never mind. Maybe I'm just wrong. You meet the witch in a in a room. The room is different. It's a is it a bedroom or is it a lab? I feel like I remember it being a lab. Yeah, it kind of looks like a lab. Okay, so you meet the witch. She's a cloaked figure. She's got you know kind of like a ancient like I'm a druid cloak, green or green. No, yeah, that's the wrong color. Brown uh, and some green, I think, like on a belt or something, but earthy, earthy tones. And she's a blonde lady. And she says, welcome, I've been waiting for you. And <laughs> Orthus yells at her for being a traitor. And you enter a very interesting dialogue sequence where your answers are actually relevant to how the game progresses. And even though it can seem like a moment that you can progress without recruiting her, I do not believe there is any way to not recruit her and let the story continue. She is supposedly unbeatable. If uh, if you choose to not go along with uh, her preferred responses. But here's the thing. That's not the only outcome. She can also just kick you out. Right. And but so I, that's what I'm wondering. Like if she kicks you out, there is no way to progress. I don't think like you need her for the next story key to happen, I believe. Mm hmm. Um, well, anyway, you know, spoiler, you recruit her. But first, she asks you, why are you following Pazuzu? Pazuzu's just mis misleading you. And, you know, you have just enough evidence to know that, yeah, there's a war going on. There's Pazuzu and Bale. I don't really you don't really have any reason to trust Pazuzu necessarily. It, um, dialogue choices are very, very confusing, though. Like, I mean, it kind of reminds me of that. What is that? That cat animal the dark souls dark, cat yeah the dark souls what thou like, must not must must <laughs> yes. thou is it true that you will not do this i don't remember i remember what the, the message was basically are you seeking the like sif's grave but the way she asked the question it's not sure because you get the answers are yes or no and it's not a yes or no question yeah this interaction is very very confusing in a similar way I actually went through some of the dialogue trees, just loading safe states just to see like what my what my actions, what I say, if it actually matters. Same. And it was like, she asks me whether or not we're the messiahs. And no matter what you say, she accuses you of blindly believing Pazuzu. It's like, okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> I mean, to this point, you haven't had any reason not to trust Pazuzu. No, not a ton, which is that's that's definitely a little confusing. Like, cause like I knew that they they were definitely making me like I was supposed to like notice. Oh, there's a war going on. People pick sides. But they didn't really give me a reason to not be on Pazuzu's side at this specific point in time. 
I was a little bit suspicious just because of that whole thing with Pazuzu shows up on the computer unexpectedly, then all of a sudden the computer starts spewing out demons. Yeah, I mean, yeah, he is responsible. That's maybe the one thing is like Pazuzu is kind of responsible for breaking the seal and bringing demons into the world. Yeah, because presumably if, if we're safe enough in a shelter to where like teenagers can be jacking around playing computer games, I assume they are pretty safe up to that point. Okay, so like that's that's basically that's the one thing you have to judge whether you leave Pazuzu or not. But the way to make the story progress is she'll say, like, do you believe me that Pazuzu is not to be trusted? And then you go, Yes, and then the the your friend will be like, What? But Pazuzu has he's the reason why we've gotten this far. You have to side with me, and then you have to basically say no, and then for like she asks you to confirm, like you're you're picking my side and you pick yes, and then your partner Evan, if you will, uh, gets <laughs> very mad, and he he's like, "How dare you? We're breaking up. I'm taking Orthus, and give me my half of Solomon's ring <laughs> and half of yeah, the money. Not. It's a it's a real. Oh yeah, he takes yeah. half the maca. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna take the kids, my money. ring, and half your money. <laughs> and he takes your best demon. Yeah. Because uh, because you don't even have to be Orthus's level to recruit him because he wants to be recruited. So he can be he can over level you at this point. Um, and uh, you choose the witch and you're on your merry way. The uh, Evan is gone forever to the realm of Pazuzu. Well, not forever. I'm sure he'll, you know, we haven't seen the last of him, right? <laughs> um, You'd be surprised if we have. And the witch is now your new partner repeating again the baffling decision to not level her up at all and remember that girl character you had in that rpg well all of her experience points went to her which means by this point she's now a good 10 or so levels behind you right which is hilarious considering if you fight her she's basically unbeatable she you i do not believe i don't think it's basically i do not think you can win that fight and she is the girl that was your side character within the game. So oddly, yes. she was in the game, but now here she is as your new partner in the world. And now, so I don't think it actually tells you this outright, but that mysterious woman that delivered the fire talisman to Hiroko in the original, in the Kayan uh, shelter, this was girl. Yeah. Now, do they, do they do they make that explicit, or is that just like you have to intuit that? Uh, so if you go back, so at a certain point you do encounter Evan's girlfriend again, and uh, she explains, "Oh, it's that girl again, the one who gave me the fire thing." Ah. Oh, I forgot about that. Oh well, slight spoiler for later. Oh, you meet this recurring character again. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that so that brings us to the end of part one for Megami wow. Tensei two. Um, the, if you do go back and talk to the NPC, oh yeah, a sorry, little little uh, hint for what's about for what's coming down the line. I believe I haven't played any further, but the NPC says that the princess is protected by Izanami, and that you know goes back to the title Megami Tensai, reincarnation of the goddess. Like that was clearly supposed to be the theme in the early days, which you know Izanami remains important, but not necessarily her reincarnation avatar, uh, you know, presence in the physical realm isn't always important in later games. No. 
So, yeah, that's the end of part one of Megami Tensai 2. Uh, you know, it was kind of hard to split this episode up, but I think we picked a good spot for the opening. We covered a lot of ground. We got a lot more to go. Uh, basically, the the next episode is going to be from this point to when you finally confront Bale. Um uh, and uh, so that'll get us a bit further into the game. And then the third episode is wrap up. Um, do we have any other business to take care of, gentlemen? Uh, be sure to write in your feedback to uh, our email address. It is uh, megatonmarathon at gmail.com. Uh, we'd be happy to read your responses on the air and just hear what you have to th- say about our podcast or that kind of awful first game. Or this game. Um, I guess we'll probably, by the time this goes out, we'll all be uh, we'll be going ahead. So if you have feedback for uh, the first uh, Shin Megami Tensei game as well, uh, you can send that along. And uh, if we get enough, we'll uh, break that off into its own episode. Just a little more, uh, just a reminder that uh, we're on iTunes. And uh, if you want to do us a solid, go on there and uh, rate and review the show and uh, tell your friends. We're at megatenmarathon.com. We got to give the traditional sign off. Life he, life ho. He ho is unfair. <laughs>